This is the Prepared Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Austin, and we are approximately, I think it's like five days out from the midterm elections, finally, so you can stop getting all this shitty mail, and hopefully then, uh, you would you'd hope it would be immediate, but it probably won't be, we can stop seeing all these damn political ads on the TV and uh, having to deal with all that stuff, interrupting our otherwise harmonious life, and we start coasting on through to uh, the holidays. You know, Thanksgiving is uh, about a month away, and then obviously uh, Christmas coming up. So, good things coming down the road ahead. And uh, you know, I'm 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 here hanging out with uh, with my dogs, with Drake and and Jax, and uh, I got another episode coming at you guys. Uh, and it's a returning guest, uh, Mr. Blake Flannery. Uh, he is one of the cadre members at Orion Training Group. And uh, just all around, just like awesome guy, very, very, very knowledgeable dude. And he's joining me this week. He's going through some small unit tactics discussion. Uh, Orion is Orion's a company that is growing in a lot of ways, and one of the things that they've recently added and are are working on building out their curriculum for is a small unit tactics course, or what they call it, a small unit maneuver. So, uh, having seen some of the highlight, uh, on the, I guess the, uh, uh, the prototype course, which is, I mean, a terrible term for it, but, uh, like the, the first iteration of this, uh, you know, small unit maneuver course, they posted some pictures and things like that online and they've hosted two classes now. Uh, I thought it'd be a really, really good opportunity while it's fresh in everyone's mind, especially as you know, we're getting the, the autumn weather coming through, people are spending more time outside, hopefully getting their rucks on, spending more time hitting the woods. And I think as a general concept, it's just becoming more popular in the 2A space right now to get away from some of the flat range things or, 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 you know, continue to get away from some of those flat range concepts and to some extent get away from some of the CQB that we see uh, a lot of people doing or trying to do in my case um, and getting into sustainment and being able to be successful in the outdoors and being able to move and communicate uh, effectively in a group, whether it's four people or, or 16 people or somewhere you know in between. So it's a really cool conversation. Uh, I learned a bunch of different things I that I, I had some base idea about to some very loose degree. Um, and, and of course, then, it, you know, we took some left turns here, you know, dump pouches came up because, you know, how can they not uh, got to got a rib Blake when I can. Uh, and those of you that, that are in the know on that, you'll you'll giggle, you'll appreciate it. But before I get over to that, have to, of course, thank our sponsor here at the Prepared Mindset, Eclipse Holsters. Guys, head on over to EclipseHolsters.com. You have the discount code Prepared Mindset. It's all one word that saves you 20% off your order. So whether that order is a new holster and a mag pouch or uh, a new core essentials belt, because the old one that you had off the rack at Walmart has finally died and you just you got to get something a little bit more rigid. Uh, maybe you're looking, getting ahead of your Christmas shopping, right? What does dad need? Dad always needs a good belt. I know I remember for years growing up, my dad uh, used to you know blow through belts and every year we got them for him. So grab him something durable like a core essentials belt from Eclipse Holsters that's really going to last and you know hold up their firearm, uh, whatever else they got going on. Again, all kinds of holsters uh, in the waistband, outside the waistband. They do tremendous work. And of course, their lifetime guarantee is second to none in the industry. Again, our discount code with Eclipse is prepared mindset. 
all one word. It's going to knock 20% off your order. And stay tuned. Like I mentioned, you know, Thanksgiving's around the corner. Eclipse may have, they may have some things in the works. They may have a pretty good sale in the works there, and you can uh, stack our code on top of it. So just something to be aware of. Uh, but if you can't wait, obviously head over there. You got questions. You can email the team. Again, eclipseholsters.com, our discount code, prepared mindset, all one word, is going to save you 20% off. Also have to make sure I call out our Patreon account. Guys, we are officially on Patreon. It's been a couple months now. We are starting to see some slow growth, and it's awesome. It's really exciting to see the support from you guys. We really, really can't thank you enough for the patronage, and we're doing our best to come to you know keep bringing the exclusive content, whether it's uh, we just put up our first exclusive uh, interview episode uh, with my good friend Conan Kilgore, or you may know him as uh, High Speed Hillbilly on Instagram. He got uh, kind of zucked out of existence, uh, but he's back online now. So I had him on for a exclusive interview. You can access through our Patreon page. Uh, we have blogs and articles and photos and videos and uh, we're working on a lot of different things to bring to you guys through the patreon account just as another way for us to grow but also to help offset the costs uh, that we have running the podcast month to month it's not a lot but uh, you know every little bit helps and we do appreciate it so head over to patreon.com forward slash prepared underscore mindset underscore pod check out what we got going on and consider making a donation to the cause So with all of that said, all of that out of the way, we're going to just get right to the meat and potatoes here, and I'm going to jump on over to my conversation with Mr. Blake Flannery. Here we go. Hey, Blake. Welcome back, brother. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you, Ben? Good. Good. Uh, Happy to catch you between classes. I uh, see you guys are doing a lot of training, a lot of... uh, Actually, one of the things that we wanted to talk about, right, uh, was small unit tactics and i didn't even realize you guys offered that as part of the curriculum maybe we talked about the last time we got together and i totally blanked but it was cool to see you guys got together and we're giving one of those classes somewhere i think you know in the midwest here um how's that all going uh, it's been going so we did uh one in the midwest it was a uh private class and it was actually said it was pretty cool for me. It was a group that um, Jared, who runs Orion Training Group, has known for quite a while. And basically, that was a group that got together uh, for his very first CKB class and kind of helped like launch uh, Orion Training Group and the idea of what we know it as today. Oh, wow. So it was cool to meet those people and, you know, now launching our first, uh, we call it small unit maneuver. Um, so it was a cool little time. Uh, we did one class out there uh, for that private group. And then we had an open enrollment one the following weekend, uh, which was just this past weekend uh, out in North Carolina. So two iterations so far, um, definitely some initial growing pains with the uh, the class. Overall, the sentiment has been, you know, people like the class and they get a lot from it. Uh, there's definitely some things that, you know, we need to tweak with the, the formatting though. Sure. So I, I feel like it's something that we see more of i I mean everything online moves in like fads and cycles and stuff but i feel like more people are starting to realize that this is the kind of thing that could be more impactful than just owning gear or more impactful than going out and buying another rifle you know the actual like application behind it um 
how how would you describe if you had to like sum up what small unit tactics is in a couple sentences for someone who has no idea what it is how would you define it well it's pretty simple you know small unit tactics are all of the things that you would do with we'll say about a squad sized element which is we'll say about <clears throat> 13 14 people right in a unified group uh, that's about a squad sized element uh, or less, and being able to, within that group, move and fight in an organized manner. That's that's small unit tactics. So uh, that's that. Yeah, that includes, you know, people tend to separate it from CQB. Um, CQB is small unit tactics when we're dealing with it at that level. So like Orion has a small unit CQB class, and that's where we have you know, the four and five person teams moving through a structure. Um, what we focus on in a small unit maneuver class are being able to move at that team level, that, you know, four to six man team level, but also the squad level of 12, 14, 15 guys uh, being able to move as a unit from point A to point B. So it's all small unit tactics, uh, which is why we didn't call it um, SUT specifically. Uh, we just call it small unit maneuver because it's about that, it's about moving, maneuvering as a small unit. So SUD is just moving and fighting, you know, within that smaller size element. So is it, so it's, it's one of those, like, uh, I'm going to put this, like a, a rectangle can be a square, but a square can't be a rectangle type things where the CQB can be small unit tactics, but small unit tactics usually isn't CQB. Or to have that backwards, maybe. No, yeah, no, it is. So it's um, yeah, CQB is often going to be, you know, it is part of like your small, like your full repertoire of small unit tactics. CQB is going to fall inside that, but it's not just you know CQB. It's you know being able to, like, uh, probably the easiest way I can think of it for people who haven't been in the military or anything is uh, think about if you're going out on like a hunting party. Right. From the point where you get out of your vehicles and you start moving to like your your stand or your hide that your point A to point B movement to do that is like a two, three, four, five man group or however many, you know, that is like small unit tactics. Now, if we were to put together like 30 people, 40 people, some kind of like massively large hunting trip right now, we're, we're outside the realm of small unit because we have a large number of people okay um, so like in the military that we're going to like company size operations battalion size and all that so um yeah cqb is pretty much always going to be a small unit tactic thing because even if we started looking at the bigger picture of conducting an assault and the assault itself might not isn't going to be a small unit thing you're going to have 30 40 you know maybe upwards of 100 depending on the level of you know unit you're working with there'd be a lot of people involved in the operation so the operation itself of conduct a raid is not a small unit tactic the things that the teams within that are performing you know just making movement up to the objective occupying their last cover to conceal position you know conducting a breach clearing rooms uh you know 
fighting across the street, you know, to, to leave the target. Like those are small unit things. Uh, it's kind of like thinking about more, you know, you have your individual skill sets. And if you perform your individual skill sets, you know, within a team, that's no longer an individual, but you have to perform your individual skill sets within that team environment. So the team can function. Now we're getting a small unit tactics and the teams have to perform their small unit tactics so that the larger element can function. Okay. That, that, that makes sense. <clears throat> so is that something then, um, I mean, where do you really even start with something like that? Cause I think it's probably one of the harder things for a lot of us to get access to. Right. Cause I mean, I know a lot, many of us, what I mean, I guess, is that like, some of us struggle to get like a good solid crew of like four dudes together. Right. <laughs> Let alone, like you're saying, like 12, 16 guys that you, you know, and trust to, to do these things and be able to be capable in these kinds of roles. Yeah. You, you probably won't, necessarily put together a group that size um it's cool if you can uh but more than likely you know from the the civilian standpoint being able to have a group that size and get together on a regular enough basis um to really build like a solid unit cohesion is not going to be super likely um but i i did a post about it a while ago um kind of along this realm where it's saying you know well Take a look at military training progression. Mm-hmm. You go to boot camp, our you know super basic requirements. But what is focused on when you go to basic training? So like you know, my experience is let's look at the Marine Corps. Uh, you do a lot of physical training, so a lot of exercise. You do a lot of weapons handling. Now we call that close order drill, and it's all that parade stuff, and you know you're marching, you know right shoulder arms, oh yeah, and all that. But what you're doing is you're building familiarity with your rifle. You are performing some acts of manual of arms with the rifle. You are learning how to move in an organized fashion within a formation um, and how to get to point A to point B. You know, that's all very parade-like and it's definitely not the best way to translate it over into, um, you know, combat. But that's the whole point of it all, right? We're learning how to move as a group. We're learning how to handle our weapons. We're not even shooting them, right? We're just learning how to handle them, learning how they function. Uh, we're learning basic commands, you know? So a close order drill and that parade stuff, that's, you know, call them left, call them right, attention, parade rest, and that stuff. When it's now we're getting in the realm of small unit tactics, it's hand and arm signals. It's how do I go from a file to a wedge? Um, same concepts though, right? It's all the same concept. So if we work on those basic things and we keep it simple and you drill out, you know, something ad nauseum, and then you add another piece to it and then you add another piece to it. And now, instead of standing still in a formation and doing left shoulder arms a hundred times in a row, now we're going to march forward and we're going to perform different acts of manual of arms with the rifle. And we are always doing our exercise. And then finally, once you have built enough familiarity with your uh, weapons, you're in a, you know, you're fit and you have a good idea of what it means to move efficiently as a formation with your weapons. Now you start looking at your live fire training and 
in the military context, you know, your live fire is basically learning to do it. Like you're learning how to shoot and you're shooting it. Uh, in the Marine Corps, we spend about a week of what most people call, consider more typical dry practice, uh, where they we have a, called it a, a snap-in barrel. And it's just a 55-gallon drum that's been painted uh, black and white and has uh, different targets on it to represent different distances. Okay. And you learn, like, you circle up around this barrel and you side in on one of those things and you just, like, work your different firing positions. It's um, And it's all dry practice. So you do that for a week and then you go live, right? Because our live practice, our live fire training is meant to be more of evaluation of our dry practice. Right. Uh, now, so you're doing all that many arms, all that dry practice. Well, then you go shoot, right? And get good at shooting. And that is definitely an easy individual skill that you can work on all the time. You know, even if you don't always have the opportunity to get together with your group, you can always be working on your your marksmanship. So you learn all that stuff. And now once you've learned how to, you know, fire your weapons and you've built a baseline of proficiency with them. Now you really start looking at how to start combining your shooting ability with your ability to move in a formation. And that's where we get into fire and movement and, uh, you know, immediate action drills and frag battle drills and rocket battle drills. And that's how all that training progresses. And now you're in your infantry training and you're learning all this stuff about how to really combine your basic movement, understanding of how to move as a formation and how to shoot and putting them together into fire and movement, which is as simple as like, you know, you and me, we're out there and you start shooting at the targets. I move forward. I set in, I start shooting at targets and that's your cue. Okay. Now he's covering for me. So I get up and I move and we just repeat that process as fire movement. And now you understand that. Yeah. Yeah, So with talking about things like, I mean, a moment ago, um, like parade commands, right. Which is, I mean, something fundamental that you hear about. And I mean, it's probably poorly (laughs) reenacted like movies and TV shows and stuff. Right. How, how do we, how does that relate to what we're, what you're trying to achieve with small unit? Cause I can, I just hearing it, I'm, and I'm, it's not that I'm questioning or doubting or anything. It's just, you know, when you, you think of being called to attention, you think of a very like flat rangey strict, uh, yeah. environment, so you know the, what I mean? Uh, yeah. The idea behind it, um, a couple of main ones is that familiarity with your weapons. So like your, your handling you know, in boot camp, you're handling your rifle. You know, for me, it was an M16. So you're handling your M16. You know, you have to inspection arms. You have to lock the bolt to the rear. So you actually understand like how that works. You've got to send it back home. And, you know, there are times you've got to flick the gun on safe and pull the trigger and put it back on safe. So you're manipulating the weapon. So you get to understand how it functions. Um, So, you know, we can draw that parallel out you know, into again, what we all observe is dry practice, like understand how your weapon functions, you know, don't just understand how to put a round in the chamber and take it off safe and pull the trigger. Like, how does it actually function? Um, and then the other reason for one of the other reasons for uh, that close order drill is uh, understanding how to move in a formation. 
So in close order drill, that's all like a very tight column and it's all neat and dressed. Right. But right. But it translates over into moving in combat formations. How do I move in a stagger column? How do I move in a wedge or a diamond or a V or uh, a skirmishers? And, you know, now putting a whole squad online, it, it translates over. And then well, one of the big ones that is most commonly cited is that instant willing obedience to orders. So like you hear a command and you, and you act um, the way it's phrased. Some people mistake that it's like, Oh, it's just be about bringing brainwashed. It's like, no, it's not about being brainwashed. It's about understanding. You hear a simple command and you understand exactly what you have to do. It's an explicit task and you understand the implied tasks that go along with it. So if I hear left, and I know like I'm about to be told to face to my left. I'm like, okay, so I've got to like, you know, I'm going to have to turn this foot and then turn this foot and, you know, do these little things to do a simple left face. And I hear face and that's the execution command. And now mm-hmm. I do it. It'd be the same thing now going into the combat formations and we're patrolling and I hear contact front. I'm like, okay, contact front, like bad guys to the front. I need to grab a piece of cover. I need to bring my head and eyes up towards the front of the formation. I'm going to bring my weapon up. I'm going to start scanning. And I'm going to start listening for the next command, which would be further information about what's going on. Like how far are they? You know, any kind of uh, description of the enemy. I'm listening for, you know, gunfire to come at me. And now I'm going to then go into more stuff. It's my OODA loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so that's, that's what it's all about. It, it is to prepare you for those other things. Um, now, a lot of us that have been in the job for a while are all pretty much on the agreement that we could do with far less close order drill and getting ready for parades and go to more battle drills and immediate action drills because you're building familiarity with weapons, you're moving in formations, and you're getting that instant willing obedience to orders. Uh, it's all in there. And it's more specifically targeted so that's you know what we do in uh the small unit maneuver class with orion and you know the cqb classes is rather than you know have everybody do a a primer of close order drill like they're the silent drill team we're just we go jump right into it like hey pie door panda door patrol across the danger area you know give a hand and arm signal um so that's that's how the stuff translates uh, and it's, it's pretty easy to uh, kind of skip the whole close order drill thing and just go straight into like the, the combat formations. Yeah. I mean, I, I, cause I think people are, uh, they just want to get into the quote, the good stuff, right. They don't want to uh, be bothered <clears throat> typically anyways with fundamentals. And I see this as a, as somebody who teaches music to like high school kids, Nobody wants to work on fundamentals. Everyone just wants to go to the stuff that looks attractive or, or feels like where they want to be. You know, they don't want to understand that, Hey, you got to learn how to crawl before you can walk and then walk before you can run. Um, but to, to all the points you just made, I think it's incredibly important to, to like what you just did explain. This is why you have to learn it. Like it's not fun or it's annoying or you, you're not going to like it, whatever, but here's why it matters. Um, you know, it cuts down on reaction time and it's actually gonna make you more proficient in what you're, it's going to get you where you want to be faster. So, I mean, uh, you know, whether people want to see it or not. And like doing, yeah, 
And like in the small unit maneuver classes, you know, we start covering formations and we go outside and I'm like, yeah, we're going to walk around. We're going to go through formations. And there's a little bit of like uh, apprehensiveness because they're like, everyone expects it to be, you know, more high paced, but it's like, you have to understand this very basic component. Like, and then we start walking around and I'm like, Hey, give the hand and arm signal and put the formation into a stagger column. And they'll forget the hand and arm signal. So I'll, I'll remind them and then they'll give the signal. And then you just be like these looks of like mild confusion. And they just <laughs> kind of repeat what they say. And then you see the guy remembers it. So he repeats it with a little more confidence. Uh, and then they start moving out in a formation and then it's like, okay, halt the formation. And now you start kind of moving some pieces around reminding guys like how it works, or reminding the why of like, you know, because if we're in a column and I'm directly across from you and we get contact from one of the flanks, like I can't just turn and shoot because you're right there. So I've got to be staggered off of you so I could just turn and shoot and you can do the same across the formation. Um, and then we keep walking and then you change positions. So now they have to think about it all over again. And by the end of it, they're like, OK, like, yeah, this it's not as sexy as doing room entries, but it's definitely something that's important. We have to figure this out because we can't progress until we figured it out. Right. So where does this kind of fall into line with things? Because, <clears throat> you know, uh, words people like to throw a lot around a lot, the trigger hashtags and stuff. Like, I feel like some people confuse what you talk about with small unit tactics and getting into things like <laughs> recon and think that it all kind of, or recce whatever and like it all blends together into one thing um is there like a i mean when do you how can i phrase this I'm sure those skills build into performing recon tasks right but it's not a guarantee that you're learning yes, how to know. do one or the other yeah it's um you know patrolling is patrolling uh you know the the thing that would differentiate a marine recon patrol from a Marine infantry patrol at a glance really should be nothing. You know, you, you might look at their equipment and you might be like, okay, those are recon Marines because they all have like much bigger rucks and they're just wearing chest rigs. And those are the infantry guys because they're all wearing body armor and, you know, they all have their boots bloused and okay. Those guys don't have their boots bloused. So like that's, Small, that's, like everyone has camouflage face paint on, you know, everyone's applying uh, scrim to their helmets and utilizing all their concealment techniques. Everyone's gear is quiet. Like everyone's adhering to the same disciplines. And as you get into it, uh, what you should see is that the reconnaissance team, the, the trained team just has better disciplines. They, they stick to their patrolling disciplines much, much tighter, much more strictly than your typical infantry patrol is going to stick to them. And that's what kind of starts separating your various levels, you know, within, you know, conventional and, uh, you know, special operations units is the discipline. Like how willing are you to not speak on a patrol? How willing are you to take the time to not make a bunch of noise. You know, are you going to go around that bush and kind of move things out of your way? Or are you just going to say, screw it and just march right through and just sound like a herd of elephants? Right. Um, there are some of those, 
differentiations start coming about. But when it comes to looking at it more objectively between a reconnaissance patrol and a combat patrol, they're pretty much going to look the same. You know, again, you would, you might look at it and the equipment carried will be a little bit different. If it's a dedicated reconnaissance patrol, there's going to be, you know, more observation equipment than there would be like rockets and machine guns. Uh, but otherwise the movement piece is going to look the same. And we actually cover that in the class. Like, you know, there are your two types of patrols is reconnaissance and combat. And then there's different types of reconnaissance patrols and different types of combat patrols. So we cover all that, but nothing in the class is really specifically one or the other, because it's just about the movement. Those other parts, you know, whether it's a route recon, a zone recon, an ambush, a raid, none of those really come into play until it's uh, the phase operation that we would call actions on the objective. So like I reached the spot where I'm going to do my thing, right? We go back to that hunting analogy. I've reached my tree stand. So now my actions on the objective will begin. I'm going to climb in my tree stand. I'm going to set up. I'm going to hook into my safety harness. I'll do my calling and, and all that. Um, that's where they really start to separate themselves. Otherwise, it's just moving as a unit, you know, through the terrain. Uh, and how do you do that as clandestinely as possible? Because even if even if you're going out and, you know, you're going to get in a fight, right? Like I want to get in a fight when and where I want to get into a fight. I don't want that fight to happen somewhere else or with the wrong people or not at a time that I set. So I still have to maintain all those patrolling disciplines. I got to be quiet. I got to eliminate any kind of lights and shine. I got to have good camouflage. I got to use good concealment techniques and put myself in a position so that I am the one initiating, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's observation or gunfire. Like I want to be the one to initiate when and where and how. Yeah. So where does that, I don't, if, if this is something that you're able to, to, to verbally explain, but um, you talked before about formations and the different kinds and, and applications and things like that. And I'd had a friend on Instagram shared something. Uh, I think he's a Marine reservist, but had posted some kind of like diagram of an ambush or something in like this situation, which formation would be best. And like, I don't know, it was like a, uh, like a curved shape ambush or something for lack of a better term. I don't sound like an idiot, but I was like, Oh, it's probably a wedge. And I think the correct answer was like a column or something. So are you able to, explain kind of why those matter and maybe the differences yeah so we don't get too like deep into that in the in the classes um we do kind of cover ambush uh because it is an immediate action drill to uh conduct what's called a hasty ambush um so it's a very brief period of instruction um but where that matters and we do cover it overall uh, throughout all the immediate action drills and, and the formations that we teach is it goes into something we call geometries of fire, right? I need to understand like, what is a field of fire? What is a sector? Where is my sector? Like, as I'm moving along or if I'm set into a position and like from here, I'm going to initiate an ambush. Like, what is my sector of fire? Like, 
where to the left and to the right am I, you know, allowed to engage? And then do I have like a good field of fire within that sector? Like, can I actually see into this sector that, you know, I'm either delineating for myself or has been instructed to me? Uh, can I actually see so that I can actually shoot targets that I'm supposed to shoot within this sector of, of fire? Um, so yeah, like that geometries. And then when you start incorporating multiple units or elements rather, so, you know, in that ambush, you've got like your assault line and then you'll have a support by fire. The support by fire needs to know where that assault line is so they don't traverse their weapons into the assault line and they need to understand that like when that assault line picks up and they're going to push through the kill zone um that they need to shift fire so you know are there signals for that is, is it an you know an automatic thing when you see the assault line pick up um so all those geometries are important to understand so that we have relative safety in what is a very high risk operation like a gunfight you know, yeah. if we don't understand those geometries, that's where formations start falling apart because guys don't really care. They're like, oh, I guess I'll just figure it out on the fly. And that's not the right answer. Yeah. So that's and that's probably an example where it probably let the similarities appear right between CQB and, you know, like uh, outdoor, for lack of a better term, outdoor small unit tactics, right, where in CQB it's easier to define your sectors of fire because you have things like walls to limit, you know, the answers to those questions where out in an open space, it could be, I mean, it could be anything. It just depends, you know, the, the variables are much higher, I would assume. It, but it, there's a lot of parallels, you know, like, so in CQB, you know, you understand your sector is like, if I'm the one man, my sector is I, you know, come in and dig my corner and then I'm going to scan it over until I get within one meter of the two man. You know, mm -hmm. that's my, my, so now if I'm laying in an ambush, uh, and you know, in the wood line somewhere, uh, you know, my sector is going to be like from this tree over here to my left to that tree over there on my right. And like, this is going to be my sector. And that's other something that you can do, um, as a disciplined and trained individual that you can identify that immediately. Uh, but a lot of times you in the infantry, when we're dealing with fresh, young dudes coming into it, it's like you as that fire team leader, you have to go to your guy and be like, hey, this is your left, this is your right. You go to the next guy, this is your left, and this is your right. And you give them those features. And then even in the infantry, as you grow as a unit, you know, you get those brand new guys and you start your whole workup over again. But by the end of the workup and you're getting ready to deploy, now those guys are able to do that on their own. You can set them into an ambush and be like, okay, boom, boom, like left and right. Got it. And they'll just automatically set it for themselves. Um, yeah. So all the parallels are there. It's just, again, building the, uh, the disciplines. And so it starts with like kind of walking the dog. And then as you do it again and again and again, and that's one of the tricky things about like the, the class we run is we, we tell them again and again and again, like you're not going to be good at this over the weekend. Like mm -hmm. you might, you're going to under, understand a good amount of stuff, but you're not going to be very good at it unless you keep going out and doing it. Um, so, you know, then that, that goes back into like, you can work on your individual 
patrolling skills. You, know, you can go out in the woods and you can walk around and, you know, you work on your land navigation. And while you're doing that, you're making sure you're not making a bunch of noise and you can even cam you up and be as camouflage as you want. Um, but it is, you know, tricky for people to find groups of like-minded individuals to go out and like practice as a team. Um, oh yeah. That's the hard part. Like, yeah. Move that still practice as an individual um, because we talk about it a lot too. It It's a lot easier because eventually you're going to have a group and that group has to have some kind of leadership designated. And it's a lot easier to be the leader if everyone just does their job. And then you just focus on getting them where they need to be and setting the conditions that they need in order to continue to do their jobs. Um, so really focusing on those individual disciplines, you know, in spite of whether or not you have a team at the moment or your team is able to get together on a given weekend, like continuing to stay on top of that stuff is, is big. So how did in the classroom setting, how do you guys determine who that leader would be? Do you just, I mean, do you take turns so everyone gets to experience that or is it something, cause I've heard it both ways where they in a class, something similar to this, right. They'll just pick somebody and go, Hey, like you're it or, you know, they'll, they'll take turns. So everyone gets to experience yeah. that. Yeah. So for um, a lot of it, it's like a rotational thing. It's like, okay, we're going to go outside. And uh, so for like just the initial practice of moving through formations, it's like, okay, you're the point man, you're the patrol leader. All right. All the rest of you are just, you know, guys in the patrol. And then that last guy, Hey, you know, you're the assistant patrol leader. And all right, start walking forward, you know, give the hand and arm signal uh, and then talking to the patrol leader, but okay, put them in this formation. So he would initiate the signal, the patrol move into formation, move the next one, move the next one. And we kind of got through the, the cycle of formations by, okay, put them back into a file, issue a halt. Okay. Now point man, go to the rear PL step up. You're now on point. That next guy, like, Hey, now you're the PL and we would do it all over again. So they already start kind of getting rotations in and that'd be for a lot of the prac gap. It's like, okay, so, you know, we just did contact front from a stagger column. Uh, now we're going to do contact, right? Uh, so, Hey, you know, you be PL, the patrol leader now, uh, uh, patrol leader, you know, you just, you're just another dude in the team and just kind of switch them out through billets. Um, some natural leaders will kind of emerge. Uh, within yeah. when, when groups show up, or even even if a bunch of individuals show up, like some guys will kind of naturally emerge, and they may not be like the greatest leaders, but they're definitely people who are comfortable in a position of being in charge. And so you can start to look at them, and when it gets to some of the other exercises, just let them uh, be in charge, uh, or you know you can intentionally like not let them be in charge and make the guy who clearly does not want to be assigned that, that responsibility uh, and make him be in charge. Um, <clears throat> big thing that we definitely rotate on uh, the, the final exercise for the class will just be like a long patrol around the property of whatever the venue we have. Um, so for that, we definitely wrote, we maintain the overall patrol leader uh, but we rotate uh, the point man. So in Illinois, uh, just had six guys. So kept the patrol leader and kept the assistant and just rotated point man through. So everyone got kind of got a chance to 
walk the front of the patrol and find a route for the patrol. In North Carolina, we had, um, we, we, we lost some people. So we ended up with 11 going on the, the final mission. Um, so we rotated whole teams. We had three teams, uh, two or three, one of four. Myself and my AI actually acted as the patrol leader and the assistant patrol leader. Okay. And we just rotated uh, those teams. Because that's uh, kind of a fairly large responsibility. Uh, one of those students is like, hey, you're going to be in charge of this entire squad size patrol. Mm-hmm. So me and my assistant, uh, we took those main leadership billets, but they still had to lead their team. So, you know, I wouldn't bring in like the whole squad to pass word. I would issue the hand and arm signal to bring up the team leaders. And then I would speak with the team leaders like, Hey, this is what we're going to do. Even at, uh, we had one guy who needed, he had to leave at a certain time on Sunday. So I, we were running low on time. I brought him in. I'm like, Hey, this is what we're going to do. This is why we're doing it. Uh, go back and brief your guys. And they went back and they briefed their team. And then we continued and we executed. Uh, so we'll rotate. But then when things, when things are kind of getting to a point where it may be a little daunting for a student who's brand new to this, like we're prepared to kind of step in and take the billet and then set the example of how, you know, we believe that action should be conducted as a leader. Yeah. No, I mean, that's cool. I think that's, that's good. Um, you know, the opportunity to, like you said, uh, kind of maybe put that person that isn't maybe such a dynamic personality in the role kind of forces them to grow a little bit and, and alternatively, right. For the person that wants to take charge has to learn how to follow, um, both, both are good learning opportunities and, and growth opportunities. And, uh, I think it's good that you guys build that in. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, we see it in life and I, I just think some people kind of ignore it and don't acknowledge the fact that you can't always do the things you want to do. Um, so going into the class, how did you guys, uh, approach it from, like a gear list or a packing list. I mean, was this something, some of the pictures I saw, it looked like some guys were pretty loaded down. Is that part of the course or does it really just depend on what they want to bring? No. So, um, there was a gear list and, um, definitely something we have to refine. So we're items that, uh, we put on the gear list as like, you must have, um, and we didn't really use all that stuff. So, we're finding it a little bit still, um, but there the one of the requirements on the the site for packing list was like all you need is a pack big enough for like one day's worth of supplies. So you know while we're out and we're walking around, you can have some water on you. You can maybe have a little bit of food on you, and if it's cold and we're wearing layers as we start, you're going to get hot and want to take those off. Or vice versa, like you don't have your layer on, we start moving. But if we stop to work on something and you, you start getting cold, you've got a layer to pull out and put back on. Um, a lot of guys just brought their full rucks. Um, and sometimes I wanted to wear them. And I was like, you don't have to wear your ruck. If you got a day bag, day bag is fine. If you want to wear a full ruck, like wear your full ruck. Because uh, nothing that we really did was that strenuous i mean maybe to some of these folks it was you know a little bit more than right. know, daily life um 
but yeah, you know, wasn't like, Hey, ruck up, you know, 50 pounds and, you know, we're going on a 12 mile hike, you know, through the veg. It's like, no, you know, just, just short movements. Um, yeah, definitely items. And some items were listed as like, Hey, this is optional. We don't really need it. Like navigational stuff. Um, it's like, Hey, you know, this might be nice to have. Uh, I think a lot of people took that as like, we should have it. It was optional because it's not a land nav class. Um, and we're, we're keeping it from being, we want to have a separate land navigation class. Um, but that in itself would be like two days of training and then, then get into, you know, all of your, your patrolling stuff. Um, so we put it on there. It's like, Hey, you know, if you want to, it's not a bad idea to have this stuff on you, especially you can, you know, get a map of the property. And that way, as we're walking around, you can kind of keep track. And if you know anything about land navigation, you can kind of do a little bit of your own. Sure. sure. Um, and then definitely on the final patrol, it's good to have. So that way you can actually like track your progress. There were definitely some guys who were walking points some teams that were like, they thought we were at one spot. And I was like, we, we are not far along as you think we are. Like yeah. we put the first team out. They were ready. Like the team was like, I was like, Hey, you know, should we rotate? I'm like, no, man, we got a while before we're going to rotate teams. I'm like, you, we got to go at least another 200 meters before we rotate the teams. He's like, okay. We went like 75 meters and they called another halt. They're like, yeah, we can rotate now. I'm like, I think you're asking me to be tired. So, okay, we'll, we'll rotate teams. But I'm like, you're about 125, 150 meters short of that 200 yard requirement. Um, you know, it's just like, it's just different for, for people. And it's a whole other uh, kind of animal. We covered very, very wave tops on it. So that's something to look at is like, you know, uh, making sure that people understand that uh, that land navigation tools are very much optional and that they will only really be used like at their individual, you know, behest um, when there's time. We asked for, uh, we asked for them to bring a lot of different signaling equipments, like different chem lights and, and stuff like that. And we didn't specifically get into that. So we might be adding a small practical application period where like, you know, we show people, what buzz saws are and we show like different uses of the laser for signaling, uh, but having people bring those and like set up their own buzz saws and then maybe go through like a little link up class where they are actually using these signals instead of just hearing me talk about them. Yeah. Um, Cause you see everybody on the, everybody on the internet has uh, chem lights and, and everything all over every piece of kit. And I kind of tend to wonder how many people <laughs> actually know, like, do you know why you have that or need that? Or is it just there? Cause it looks cool. It was funny too. This law, uh, there was one group where uh, two of the guys had their chest rig set up pretty much the same. And they had a uh, four chem lights on the front of their, uh, their chest rigs. And we went maybe, maybe 150 meters uh, through the wood line. And one of the guys, one, one of his chem lights is completely gone. And he had a second one that was, you know, an inch away from being gone as well. And I was like, Hey, you, uh, you missing something? And so he looked down and he pulled them all out of the holders and he shoved them. And then his buddy, you know, did the same thing. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things that, you know, we do that, you know, we see it on the internet and it, it looks like a good idea. And, and you know, sometimes you just, you don't know what you don't know. And if you see it and it looks like a good idea and it looks cool to you, like you're going to replicate it. 
Um, yeah. So you, know, you get out and you're like, oh, I probably don't need, you know, a bunch of green chem lights exposed to the sunlight, which ruins them. Uh, and where they're going to get, you know, eaten by the bush monster. Right. So, yeah. And like the whole gear thing in general, uh, I thought about having like a formal class, to, like talk about kit. But then I'm like, that's basically the vast majority of my spiel on social media is talking about gear. Yeah. And if they're coming to this class, it's very likely they already know who I am through social media and they've been following the page. Uh, so rather than do that, it just, I bring out like all of my kit. So I've got my, my chest rig, I've got my plate carrier, my gun belt, I bring rucks out. And so I just have it all out and, you know, people can look at it and, you know, people come up like, Hey, can you take a look at my, my kit? You know, am I packing the right stuff? So like on an individual basis, like in between classes or like at the end of the day, you know, I'll, I'll basically like little one-on-one consults with people uh, and their equipment. And that, that seems to be working out pretty well. And that way we don't have to have a kind of boring class about kit. Right. And it's really not even the point of the class. It's like, <clears throat> it's moving around. Yeah. And I remember the last time we talked, something that you specifically called out was uh, like gun belts. Right. And everyone runs a drop leg with the thigh strap. Cause it's just what you do. Right. <laughs> um, did you have anybody in this class, like start off with that? And then the first stop in, like strip off the belt and the, and the, the strap and everything. And like, fuck this, I'm done. There was one guy, uh, he came out. And he had his chest rig. He had a full, it was a mystery ranch ruck and he had his gun belt on and he walked from his truck about 50 yards over to the uh, campfire. And we were kind of rallying around the campfire. And he was like, I already know why people say not to wear gun belts with a ruck. And I was like, I mean, you can do it, right? You just, like, if you're going to be doing it, you have to, you know, make sure your ruck is, is like size well. And, you know, yeah, I consider the type of ruck you're using and how your belt is built out as well. And he's like, yeah, he's like, this is already uncomfortable. I'm like, you, you can drop your belt, dude. <laughs> I don't need you to, to embrace the suck with the gun belt. Like you can drop the, the gun belt. Uh, I'm like, and if you want, you can even like, you can just go to a day bag if you don't want to do a ruck right now. And he's like, Thank you. And he went back to his truck and he dropped the gun belt. And uh, I, I think he kept the ruck for that portion, but then he went to a, just a day bag uh, for the rest of it, you know, and, and that's fine. And that's great. Cause that's one of the best ways to get out there. And it's like, cause you could get out there and do it. You're on your own, but you, you might have that lingering, like, you know, is it really bad or am I just being a, a pansy? Cause I've never done this before. You yeah. Know? But then when with experience is like, no, that's not a very good idea. You, you don't need that right now, you know? Um, and that was more like the, that individual, he had a lot of questions about that stuff. Like when would you wear what? Uh, and so like I did some of the prac app, you know, I put on my plate carry and I put on my gun belt and I put on a small assault pack and they're like, would you wear that with a ruck? I'm like, I could, you know, I wouldn't want to do it for a long period of time. And I wouldn't want to do it with a ruck that's going to, you know, was, loaded out to sustain me for like 96 hours. Cause that's heavy. But if I had to carry some extra equipment, you know, going into an assault, I could. And, you know, we have those little kind of sidebar conversations and then we move on. 
Yeah. I feel like that's like, that's a big point of value for a lot of people because everyone spends so much money on kit, you know, and it's always very eye opening. And I can, I say this from personal experience and embarrassment, uh, that first time you actually get out and like use your gear in an environment where it's like loaded down and, and I'm actually in this instance, I'm just talking about like a, a battle belt or, or whatever, uh, not realizing like, Hey man, it feels sized when you're dry firing and then you put actual loaded like ammunition and everything in your magazines. And that bitch is a lot heavier. And like, it was, I mean, yeah, it was pretty bad. It was falling down my ass and everything in the middle of class. It was pretty, it's pretty embarrassing. Yeah. That's something I think a lot of people don't realize. Um, like with chest rigs is <clears throat> you got to balance, you know, your chest rig is, you know, some people just like, I'm just gonna throw my, my analogy and even just a one liter container of water on one side of your rig and you just have like four or five loaded mags, whatever. And there isn't like a radio and maybe a smoke grenade or something on the other side of the rig to balance it out. It's going to pull towards that heavier side and it's going to be, it's going to be a nuisance. It, it may not really get uncomfortable, but it's going to be a nuisance that your whole rig is always like lopsided and you're going to realize it. So like you got to build the thing out. So it's balanced. And that even kind of goes for, for plate carriers and plate carriers a little bit easier because you have, you know, all your different uh, straps and harnesses and they're intended to fit, you know, much more snug, but even a plate carrier, if you, it is wildly, you know, lopsided with weight, that's going to get really uncomfortable and it's not going to continue to ride that nice, perfect way. So like you set it up and you put it on in your bedroom and you're standing there like, yeah, this is great. But then you get out and you move like 300 yards and it's not sitting the same anymore. And I was like, okay, no, now, now this sucks. Like I need to fix something with this. Yeah. And then you get into all those fun experiences with chafing and, uh, and yeah, stuff starts riding in places. It's not supposed to be. Did you guys run into any of that during the class? Uh, not that anybody mentioned, uh, as far as things like rubbing the wrong way, but definitely, um, the bush monster, uh, trying to take items out of kit, you know, like open top mag pouches are really great, uh, for the, the accessibility to the, the magazine or the item that you put in them. But like, I've been harping on it for a long time is like, you need to have active retention. You know, so the passive retention of like an STAC Kiwi insert is great. Uh, or like a fast mag, you know, like that's great. That's really positive passive retention. But if you don't have a flap or a bungee tab that can be pulled over it, like it's going to get molested out there in the bush. And you may not still have it when you walk through. And uh, so I was always looking around. I was really waiting because there are a few guys who, who want to run their pistols the entire time. And I was really waiting for somebody to like come out of some thick veg and be like, uh, you, you, you need to go back because you're missing something. Uh, but fortunately it didn't happen. Fortunately, you know, everyone's uh, stuff was well enough retained, but definitely like magazines, uh, you know, we'd already talked about like the chem light thing. There were definitely little items that came popping out of people's pouches Uh so you got to have that that active retention on there because you don't always need all of your magazines to be like speed reload, emergency access magazines. And yeah. there are definitely times you don't need that, you know. 
Yeah. Well, and it's, and you know, just a lot of guys will run like their holsters and they'll just buy Kydex, which is, which is cool. Like those, some of those are really good holsters. Um, but then it's almost like, I kind of question it sometimes because I see guys, uh, I had one in, I took a rifle class at the end of September and that was just on a flat, like indoor range guy took off and he's probably gonna listen to this and it's just, it's all in good fun, but took off down to the end of the range as part of the course of fire and was running so fast. As soon as he hit the brakes to take that next shot on the target, or whatever he, like his Glock flew out of his Kydex, you know, uh, drop holster and he didn't even realize it. Um, and the, the instructor called it out and was like, yeah, that's, you know, I thought it was a magazine. It was his Glock. And so maybe that's why you look into something like a safari land that has a hood or at very least it has that, that positive retention on the ejection port. Yeah. Well, even like with the, uh, you know, like the passive friction holster is, is a lot of people forget that you need to check, you need to check those because they'll loosen up over time, especially if you don't put any thread locker on the screws. Um, you know, I, I have it to where, you know, I'll, I'll do some little dry practice and I'll be like, well, oh, that's, that's a little loose. So I pull out, you know, my Leatherman and right there, I'll, I'll tighten it down a little bit. And I'll remind myself like, okay, if I was backing out, you know, I need to go put Fred locker on that. Um, and then I, you know, I go do that. So you got to check because it's, it's definitely usable. Um, you know, and I had uh a Marine one time, he, uh, we're doing, uh, some, uh, visit board search and seizure training. So a ship takedown and, uh, he climbs over the side and he starts working and he went and bought himself a new holster. You know, oh, you're, no. you're, you're issued a safari land. He went and bought himself a, um, Kydex friction based retention holster. Now it did come with a bungee pull tab for active retention. And, uh, I was like, Hey, can you draw your pistol right now? And he just thought I was asking him if he could, if he could like access it where it wasn't his hip. And he's like, yeah. And he like puts his hand on it. I'm like, yeah, yeah. So pull it out of the holster and he goes to pull it out of the holster, but it, it won't because it still has the bungee tab on it. And he's like, mm-hmm. Oh, and he likes, you know, he's like trying to mess with it. And I'm like, look, I am no longer in a position where I can tell you you cannot use that. I'm going to recommend that you don't. But at the very minimum, if you're going to be adamant about utilizing that, that holster is when you get up the ladder or down the rope and you're on the boat, you need to make it part of your process to undo that bungee tab. That way it's actually accessible. Um, And then you have to understand that now you only have friction holding that pistol inside that holster like it could come out you know you're on a boat you can fall you can trip and then your pistol comes out and then what are you doing uh yeah kind of screwed yeah he was like okay and uh he ended up going back to um his farland you know so they, they definitely have their their place um but yeah when you're in a certain environment you definitely want good active retention holsters and for everything active retention for all your crap. Cause I, yeah, and I wouldn't have <clears throat> necessarily thought that it would have been an issue with like the rifle mags, you know, hearing you say that is actually just, it's actually kind of surprising. Cause you, I mean, you see a lot of guys say that you don't need it. You know, it was designed for airborne operations or it's excessive or it's, it's old. Cause it's what we we've only ever had. You know what I mean? Um, 
I, it just, I mean, it kind of goes to show you there's, there, there's a time and place for everything and a proper application yeah. for everything. Yeah. And a lot of that stems from like everyone thinking about, everyone thinks about their equipment from the standpoint of I'm in a fight and I'm in a close fight. And so that's where we kind of got to this idea of like, all my magazines should be open top, you know, what we call like speed reload type magazines where it's just friction retention, holding that thing in and they should all be that way. Um, which yeah, they could be right. And yeah, a flapped magazine pouch will be slower to index a magazine than a bungee or one that has just the passive retention. But then you have to look at what is it you're doing, you know, with all those pouches. And if your plan is to run the mag dry and then reload every time, you're already behind the power curve. Like there, there's more that you need to be focused on than, you know, your magazine pouches. You need to do some work on your manual of arms and your ideas for, for gunfighting. But say I, I run flat magazine pouches, which I have, it's like, okay, run a flat magazine pouch. There is some passive retention when I've got, say, two mags stacked in this uh, M4 pouch. Well, I get to my last cover to conceal position or, you know, my, my attack position and we're about to initiate the assault. Well, I can undo one of those pouches and I can tuck the flap behind the magazines. So that gives me a little more retention because there's more material uh, pressing against those magazines but it gives me two magazines that are much more accessible. So if I do go to bolt lock, I've got a couple mags that are that much more accessible to get that gun back up, you know, and I can do it that way. Or I just carry one on my belt that has a bungee tab and I just slick that thing off. Now, as I'm about to go into a fight, I have that one emergency access pouch and all the rest that maybe have flaps or bungees, right? It's not that hard just in a process as you're like bounding from point A to point B to get closer to your target, you know, moving is dead time and reloading is dead time. So why don't I do them at the same time and I can just reload as I move, keeping my gun gassed up, indexing magazines back into my kit because it's still got bullets, even if it's only a few. And, you know, now that whole idea of it being a flapped or bungeed magazine pouch is, is kind of moot. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people kind of forget about it. And, you know, that also that not all engagements happen at close quarters. And just because you go to bolt lock doesn't mean you dump the magazine. If I'm 200 yards away and my gun runs to bolt lock, I'm not just dumping the mag and gassing it up. Like I'm actually going to swap the magazines out and I'll cram that empty one somewhere. It'd be down the front of my shirt. If I'm wearing a chest rig, it'll be in my cargo pocket. And then I'm, back in the fight is would it be in a, a dump cover. pouch would you would you put it in a dump pouch you think <laughs> i'm sorry i had to take uh, the shot when i opened up so actually it was funny it was one of the students had uh well most of them had dump pouches uh but one guy had his uh it was like a little nalgene bottle like one of the smaller nalgene bottles not the full size like one quart so it was like a half quart Mm-hmm. And it was in his pouch and it was catching on everything, everything walking through the bush. And he, he, it was so bad at one point, he actually had to stop 
and asked for help for the guy behind him in the formation to untangle his dump pouch from the veg. I was like, maybe, maybe we don't need those. But there were roll-ups, so they, you know, they he stowed it and rolled it. Um, and then I had that conversation with the with the group, and they were like, Well, yeah, I use it on the range to to hold my water and hold my snacks. I'm like, okay, so you know, it's a range thing. So if it's a range thing, we probably don't need it on our fighting load because we only use it for admin things on the range. They're like, well, what do you do with your water? I'm like, I keep it in a water bottle. Well, what do you do in your range? Well, it's a Nalgene, so I drop it. <laughs> and then when I want water, I pick it up. And then if I have to walk back, like if we're at the five-yard line and the instructor says, okay, we're going to go shoot at the 10-yard line, I turn and I kick it. <laughs> beyond the 10 yard line. And then I walk to the 10 cause it's a Nalgene bottle and I can do that with a Nalgene bottle, you know, like it's not, it's not a big deal. I don't need a holder on my belt. I don't need to like speed hydrate with a Nalgene bottle. Um, yeah. It, it's just, it's, it's one of those things everyone thinks they have to have because they saw somebody else run it. And I mean, it has its place, but it's just really not that valuable, honestly. Well, and there's the other concept too, and I think it comes from, you know, I hate to be that guy. Like, ah, it's, it's the darn video games, but I think it does come from the idea of like you see in video games, like you're running around like a first person shooter, and you know, when you just tap a button and your character throws a grenade like immediately, right? Like the like the grenade is just hanging off the front of you and like by the pin, so you're just pulling off the pin and throwing it. And the reality is, it, it takes a little bit more to do that in real life with a real grenade and that's not a one-man show like yeah one guy's gonna throw it but going back to the idea of like you know fire movement if you're shooting i'm moving or you're shooting that's my cover to throw a grenade you know if you look at uh police there's one guy will have non-lethal who have his taser out somebody else has lethal out somebody else has their pistol or if you know one guy has the beanbag shotgun Somebody else has their pistol or their rifle out. Like it's not a one man thing to employ a grenade or a rocket. That's like a multiple person thing. Someone's employing the munition and someone has a weapon out covering for you, like engaging for you. You know, if you're in CQB, if I'm the first guy on the door, I don't just drop my gun and throw a bang in. I call for one and the guy behind me throws it. And I'm covering for him while he throws the bang into the room, you know, so it's always that, that two man thing. So it doesn't need to be as fast as reloading my gun, right? It doesn't need to be that call of duty speed where I just tap a button. And then in less than a second, my character has, you know, deployed a grenade or a trip mine or, you know, some other whatever munition that they're going to throw. Um, you definitely don't want it to be a slow process, which is why you look at, how you store them and you know you practice with them so you get faster and more confident with their employment but it's not like the thing where people like oh yeah i carried frag grenades in my dump pouch and i was the the fastest frag grenader and i'm like you're carrying fragmentation grenades high explosives loose in a pouch where they can they can like have pins get pulled out like i've seen guys almost have their pins get pulled out properly stored in grenade pouches oh wow you know, so yeah it can happen because they they have you know there's the normal pin everyone thinks about well, there's also a small 
clip called the thumb clip that is meant to prevent the pin from being pulled out. But a lot of guys are very careless with those and they get lost. And I've plenty of times been issued frag grenades that don't have the thumb clip. And I'm like, this sucks because now <laughs> I have to be really aware of this pin. Cause like you go walking through some thick veg and like you, you got one hand over your frags cause you don't want those pins to get caught and you know, have one of them pulled out on you. It, it's a thing. Is it super common and incredibly dangerous? Well, I mean, yeah, it's dangerous, but it's not super common for pins to just kind of walk themselves out or get pulled out, but it, it can happen, you know? So it's like, if you can mitigate that by simply carrying a frag grenade in a frag grenade pouch and carrying a flashbang in a flashbang pouch, then just do that and not have them in a position where they're, you're going to lose them or they're going to go off, you know, you know, negligently on their own. So is that, I mean, and again, this is having never actually played with grenades or done any of that cool stuff. Um, is that why people, I assume, uh, will use like electrical tape to help secure the pin or is that just a movie thing? Uh, I don't know where it started. If it was movies, uh, I'm sure it started in real life somewhere. Um, and so like my first deployment, you know, we all did that. Like, oh yeah, like you, you gotta put, you gotta put that little strip of tape around that to help it. And then you put the strip of tape around the pin and then you end up with guys who like, they pull the strip of tape and the pin and they throw a grenade, but they still have that strip of tape holding the spoon down. So the grenade doesn't go off. Oh no. It's like, well, pointless. And, um, so then like the next deployment, I was like, okay, well, that's not a great idea. It's not necessary, but I'm still kind of nervous about those pins. So I took like a little square of, you know, duct tape and I just put it like over the pin, like to the fuse head. So it wasn't like wrapped around, but it was just like the tiniest little extra measure so that I could just like, as I pulled the pin out, the tape would come off and was just to help prevent like any kind of veg or, you know, if I got into a tussle with somebody like nothing could kind of catch in the pin and pull it out by accident. And my third deployment, I started to do that again. And my team leader tore me a new one. Like, and he was not a type of dude to like yell and get loud and angry, but he was pissed when he saw me trying to do that. I was like, okay, okay. I, I will not do this any longer. Like I, I get it. Um, yeah. It's really not a, a great idea. You know, I know I'm sure there are people out there who probably did it and, you know, they were successful enough with whatever their method was, but I've seen a lot of, I see it with flashbangs. Uh, I've seen people put rubber bands around the flashbang and then when they throw the flashbang, they forgot to take the rubber band off. And so it's still holding the spoon to the body. And so the fuse never ignites and it's like, great. Now, you know, we have to have EOD come and deal with this friggin' flashbang um it's the rubber bands just what to make sure to help make sure it doesn't accidentally go off they decided that they wanted an another safety on it so they put a rubber band on it and either they put it around the body and the, and the spoon to hold the spoon to the body or sometimes you'll i would have seen guys would have put it uh around the head uh the fuse head so it would hold the spoon and the pin to the fuse head but then in their process of like trying to pull the pin, they would either slide it down or it would remain around the fuse head. And uh, some of the retainer bands that we have are strong enough that it wouldn't allow 
the spoon to disengage and initiate the fuse. So it's like, all right, well, that was, that was stupid of you. Like you don't need to do that. So don't do that anymore. Like hopefully lesson learned. Yeah. So when is the, uh, when's the Orion class on uh, grenades coming when you guys got that planned? Uh, so I don't know if you guys have been look, seeing the page, but, uh, what I think is IWI internet or something, the yeah. company that's the smokes, the smokes and the, the flashbangs. Um, so, uh, Jared, I don't think, you know, he's becoming a, a dealer. I think he's the relationship is something like he's a dealer, but he's not retailing them. It's just so they can be used in Orion classes. So, you know, you might see more, uh, you know, flashbang employment if you go to uh, an OTG CQB class, you know, down there in uh, Louisiana or Texas. Um, but bang employment in itself is like a whole, it's like a whole extra class. Even when teaching Marines, even like when I teach Marines, all of these Marines have thrown fragmentation grenades. Like it's a basic requirement uh, in your entry level training to throw a frag grenade. And they've all done it. You know, now I have to like, teach this additional period of instruction on flashbang employment and then, you know, have them throw flashbangs or everybody understands it, gets comfortable with it. And like, OK, now we can start, you know, incorporating that into the shoot house. Um, so it, it could happen. Uh, I would I would expect probably in like the full team classes, if we have a venue, we can use them and we've got them on hand. Um, we'll probably see some flashbang employment. But Yeah. If they as they become more available, I, I guarantee it'll become incorporated into the curriculum. Uh, but we just have to incorporate it the right way so we don't take away from the class just just to cover flashbangs because it's good. You know they're a tool for sure and they're useful. Um, but when you're trying to learn how to CQB, right? A flashbang is not CQB; it's just a flashbang. Right. Well, and uh, I know a lot of guys run around with the, um, <clears throat> and I think uh, Jared and Jason had even had this in their video was like the airsoft flashbangs that you couldn't get for a hot second because they were like mass produced in, in Russia or something. They just blow apart. They're not like reusable or anything. Um, and I guess, and I, I got this from their video, I guess that company, because of that ban, moved everything to Europe so they could start exporting back to the United States. Because uh, I feel like to your earlier point, a lot of guys just think it's just like Call of Duty. Like, I'm just going to pop the store open and, and chuck in a flashbang and be on my merry way. Um, and there's likely a lot more to it than that. Yeah, like it is. It can be as simple as that. You know, we teach like, hey, just just get the bang in the room. But then it's, you know, the understanding of like where it is in your kit and the finer points of like if there's a closed door. I probably don't want to pull that pin before the door is open. Cause if I pull that pin and somebody goes to open the door and it's locked, now I'm stuck holding a live grenade in my hand, waiting for somebody to get that door breached, you know? So that it's like, well, that's not a really, that's not a great idea. You know, I don't want to sit there and hold this live bang and hope that I'm maintaining enough pressure right. that that spoon doesn't go. So now I have to dump the bang. So I dump the bang. Where do I dump the bang? Like, where's a clear area where I can dump that bang? And, you know, even though it's not that bad, like when you work around them a lot, it's not that bad to eat a flashbang. Um, it's definitely still not ideal. That's a lot of overpressure you're exposing yourself to. Um, 
and then some of them will like kick up, you know, debris and, you know, it's now you're dealing with that. But now it's also like, now I have to deploy this bang. And if I was fairly still with the element of surprise, like now definitely losing that by throwing this bang somewhere. Um, so like, that's one thing, or, you know, guys will booger their, uh, their toss and they'll bounce it off the door frame and back into the stack. And without a doubt, the first time it happens, anyone who hasn't dealt with having to eat a bang before, like tries to bail, like they try to run down the hallway or like to the other side of the room. It's like, fuck it. No, stop. Like it's a flashbang, like not ideal to eat a bang, not ideal, but you know, it's there you've already you know been around a lot of them going off like just kind of you know don't look at it right because it's on the ground and you need to be eyes up anyways so don't look at it and just turn your crotch away from it let it go off and then continue doing what you were doing oh my god <laughs> don't try to kick it that's another one it's like if it lands next to your foot just step away from it don't try to kick the bang because every time somebody sees it by time they have made that decision of bang on the ground and I'm going to kick it, it's only a one and a half second fuse. So by the time you make that decision and you go to kick it, it's going off as you're kicking it. And a lot of those bangs will be able to blow a hole in your boot and burn your little toes. So don't kick the flashbang. Just step away from it. That's, oh my God. I, I can only imagine like the training stories and just like the funny, well, not really funny. I guess it is kind of funny bullshit of like you're saying guys afraid of, uh, because you see it in movies, you see it on TV. And I mean, it's human nature, like shit, that's a grenade. I mean, it's a bang, but it's a, it's a grenade. Right. And you're just going to freak out. And yeah, it, it is really funny to watch people freak out about the bang, especially when they're like the, uh, you know, like the airsoft ones where like, it's not even as loud or as violent as like a, a military flashbang. And they go like bailing away from it. It's like, it's like a little seal two pop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, all right. Yeah. I just, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, definitely. If you're somebody listening to this uh, podcast and you're, you're rocking, cause I, I've seen guys do it in class, right. Rocking some of the, uh, the airsoft uh, bangs or maybe you got the good shit, whatever. Uh, maybe seek out some professional instruction before you uh, jump out there with that stuff. But, uh, but Hey man, this is, this has been awesome and, and hilarious. Honestly, uh, I, I probably shouldn't find all of that funny, but I, I kind of do. Uh, I appreciate you making the time and, and I'm on, I'm excited and happy to hear you guys are expanding the, the curriculum with the small unit stuff and everything. I know um, I think that was something we talked about the last time you were on. I think you said that uh, you had a lot of questions or had gotten a lot of questions around like the, the recon piece or asking how to ambush somebody, you know, stuff like that. So obviously not something you want to promote, but be able to move. Cause I think something else we talked about was like being able to successfully move a group of people from one point to another to avoid a threat rather than engage one. Yeah. And it's, it's a whole thing that'll, that'll continue to expand, you know? So we, we do want to teach land navigation. Um, there's just, there's a lot that goes into land nav. Um, and one of the, the biggest issues is, you know, like, where do I send people? You know, I, <clears throat> I gotta have, you know, either a area that's rich enough in terrain that, you know, I can send them from hilltop to hilltop. Um, but then, you know, that gets pretty easy because 
like I'm just walking to a hilltop. Like I can see that hilltop. I'm going to walk to it. Boom. I've, I've accomplished my goal. If I get within like 200 meters of it, you know, so you want to have like more defined points, but I, I'm not going to do it, you know, in the mill, like how we do in the military, I'm going to basically take a, a road sign and I'm going to pound it into the ground until it's like chest high and it's green. And Hey, you know, go find that in the, in the bush. So it, that I mean, it's a whole other story, but we are going to um, have land nav going. Um, we'll continue with the small unit maneuver, which is essentially a patrolling class. Uh, and then that'll expand and we'll have uh, planning classes. So we cover mission planning in the class, but it's really quick and wave top just so everyone has an understanding of like how much has to go into the background of going on a mission. It's not, you know, just as simple as like, yeah, we're just going to go do this thing and we'll make it up as we go along. Um, so we'll have planning classes and um, we'll continue to expand on the concept. We'll have a, a, a dedicated field craft class where we'll look a lot more like concealment techniques and camouflaging and, you know, sourcing water and, and all that stuff. And then eventually uh, we already talked about looking to put it all together into like a week long uh, training package. Wow. You know, so people, and, you know, which that's a little bit down the road, um, but there's definitely be a lot more, within that, within the small unit tactics realm, you know, not just CQB and small unit maneuver. Like we're going to keep expanding within that whole sphere of small unit tactics. Yeah, that's awesome. That, that all sounds awesome. <laughs> you know, um, and I haven't actually made it to a class yet. I'm working on it. Uh, but I only hear good things about everything that, that you do and, and Orion does. So exciting to, to know that there's even uh, more coming and that it's, coming from a place, you know, of, of being well thought out, not just something that's thrown together and just thrown out there to try and grab money as well, you know, cause we see so much of that. So, um, if, if people have questions, uh, if you just want to throw out there real quick where they can find you on, uh, on social media. Yeah. So the, uh, uh easiest place to find me is going to be Blakewater0326 on Instagram. Uh, I also have my business page, Maneuver Training Solutions, LLC. Um, and just my business page is where I share all the firearms-based content, so everything on marksmanship, manual of arms, uh, and training tips. And then Blakewater is everything else, mostly you know equipment solutions focused. Uh, but you can hit me up another one of those uh, with any kind of a question, all right? And uh, I get to all of the messages, so uh, hit me up there. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it for the social media. I have a YouTube channel, but it's kind of on a, a hiatus for the moment. So I figure my recording studio life out. Yeah, that's definitely a, that's a whole other world with when you start getting the video and everything, but uh, yeah, man, thank you. Uh, it's been awesome. And uh, I look forward to hopefully doing this again in the future. Yeah. It's been a good time. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. We'll talk soon. All right. So a great conversation with Blake. We got, uh, we got into all kinds of different things. Uh, there were some weird, you know, I apologize, some, some weird audio gremlins that kind of 
kind of snuck in there. It's a little bit, uh, you know, unusual, but, uh, you know, we power through it and, uh, it's still a really good conversation. Still a lot of good information. Blake's a really, really smart and experienced guy with a lot of knowledge that he's out there sharing, whether it's, you know, through his own company, uh, or working with Orion. Uh, and I'm, you know, I just, I count myself very lucky to uh, be able to get him on the pod here to talk and to, and to pick his brain a little bit about uh, some of these 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 things these topics right as they become more prevalent more more popular more common in in our uh, you know two a space we are seeing a movement away from I mean it's this continued movement right you know we kind of have as a community right as a culture been getting away from the flat range only training and civilians are now starting to spend a whole lot of more uh, time and energy and, and money, right? Learning about things like small unit tactics, learning about things like CQB and a, and a finer understanding of what kind of gear they should have. And not only, you know, what they should have, but why they should have it or why they shouldn't, you know, we even talked about it in the discussion, Blake and I did that. Do you see somebody running some gear and it's probably a good idea? Maybe it's a good idea. And you want to emulate that because you want to put yourself in the best situation to succeed. And then you, know, you find out later, maybe that's not the best idea, or maybe you don't understand why somebody had that. And it's, you know, the, the context behind all of that. So, uh, but again, a, a fantastic conversation with so much, you know, knowledge and, and information packed into that. And if you guys, seriously, if you're not, if you're not following Blake on Instagram, like rewind, go back hear where to find it, you know, his company's page, his page, and go check out his reels and stuff. He's got all kinds of good shit in there. Gear, he talks about working out. Uh, him and I talked a little bit about that offline after we finished our conversation there. Uh, just all kinds of stuff. You know, if you guys are looking for information, you know, and that's really what a lot of us are doing is looking for information. We have questions or perhaps we have a vague curiosity around a very specific subject like small unit tactics, like plate carriers, like belts, like general purpose pouches, whatever have you. Seek out Blake and his page and shoot him a message. Ask him some questions. If you you want to know, there are great people out there, and I definitely consider him to be one of those subject matter experts that can help shine a light on why maybe you want to do something or maybe, you know, why you don't, right? So, I hope you guys really enjoyed it, and I hope you learned some things from it. Uh, and if you're somebody listening to this or have you know, have been listening to this podcast, and small unit tactics are on the short list of things you want to find instruction on, you want to take classes on, these are your guys, man. Reach they're they're not the only ones out there doing it. Granted, they are not the only ones out there doing it. They have not been doing it as long as some of the other people. But if you know, I've I've had. Jason and Jared and Blake on and and Burke from Orion and they're all very very smart and very articulate individuals. Uh, I would definitely encourage you to check out their curriculum and I would very much recommend anybody looking for instruction to seek out what Orion has to offer, especially as they continue to grow and develop their offerings. So with that said, I'm going to wrap it for this week, folks. Uh, again, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that we are about five days away, uh, five, six days away from midterm election night. Get out and vote. I implore you to vote and make your voice heard. Very, very important in this country here, the United States of America. And I implore you to stay tuned. 
as uh, we'll have another episode next week. Got more stuff coming. You know, I'm really trying to avoid that holiday slowdown as we get to the end of the year. We're going to slow down a little bit. There's definitely going to be uh, a couple less guests over uh, the tempo. The uh, the op tempo here may may slow as I try to take some time to, you know, relax and enjoy myself with my family. But got some pretty cool things that we're lining up and we're working on and, uh, you know, more to come. So stay tuned. And as always, we appreciate you guys tuning in. Until next time, you guys get out there, work hard, train smarter, and like we always say here, be prepared. Be prepared.